Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. I'm particularly pleased to have today's guest on. Um, he is a Washington writer. He's for two dec- decades was chief economics correspondent at Voice of America News, reporting from 25 G7 or 8 and G20 summits. He is the Washington correspondent of RTHK Hong Kong Radio. His earliest reporting, including covering key events in South and Southern Africa, and he was literally there at the moment they happened. It's the right place, right time in a perverse kind of way. The one was the Portuguese withdrawal from Mozambique and Angola and the start of the Soweto uprising in 1976. He's the author of the book Exploring New Europe, A Bicycle Journey, and I assume it was written because he travelled by bicycle through 14 countries of the former Soviet bloc after the fall of Russian communism. Barry Wood, thank you very much for joining me and welcome. Thank you. Much of this interview is going to deal with the assignment you've just completed um, in Prague, Czech Republic, but you lived in Prague from 1994 to 1997, and I'm just interested to know what the experience was like then when the communist bloc was essentially democratizing and opening up and and countries were leaving the Soviet Union. Well, first of all, it was very exciting because uh, it was different in each country, I think. What I know the most about is Czechoslovakia. But in that case, it was November of 1989, shortly after the wall came down, And people just went into the streets and they had a very sclerotic communist government. I mean, really people who were not apparently very mentally sharp. Mm. And they were, of course, members of the party. That's why they were in power. And they collapsed like a house of cards. They put a quarter million people into Wenceslas Square, which is the main gathering point in, in downtown Prague. There's the National Museum at the top and then a very wide Uh, space between the buildings, and it goes all the way down to what is the Mustek subway stop. And in one demonstration, I think there were a million people. And they all, for Václav Havel, who was a well-known dissident playwright, to go to the castle. So it was Havel Nahrad, hold their keys up and, uh, you know, all that jangle. The government just collapsed. And indeed, Havel appeared at a balcony Wenceslas Square. And uh, it was over, just like Mm -hmm. that. So you asked me what it was like to be there in 91. Mm -hmm. That's when I first made my time in Prague. I had not been. Uh, It was very communist, which really means there was no color. Buildings were gray. And the people, you know, they didn't have proper cosmetics. So hair was stringy, male, female. And people were dispirited. When I arrived there to live in 94, things were already considerably better. Freedom had taken root. And in the case of Czechoslovakia, Havel was just instantly elected president. It's amazing. I mean, he had no political experience at all. Absurdist plays. So there was tremendous optimism. I think that is the best answer I can give to your question. Interesting just that you refer to everything being gray, because I've always held the view that the problem with authoritarian societies is that expressing your imagination is usually part of what government doesn't want you to do. And so a lot of what goes into art and and brightening things up and, and, and creating color is suppressed in a more totalitarian state. And you need essentially some form of democracy for literally people's talents to flower and the color comes along accordingly. Absolutely. 
you know, the expression was you were a writer, but you wrote for the drawer mm. because mm. you knew what you published or what, what you wrote could not be published. You put it in the drawer. And that was certainly the case with Havel. You know, some of his plays, after much debate, could be performed during mm -hmm. communism. But he was in and out of prison uh, for subversion. And, you know, really, he was being chased by the authorities because he was middle class. He mm -hmm. was bourgeois. Mm -hmm. And yes, color. I don't think freedom can function without color, mm -hmm. without that individualistic that says an artist can come along and can paint something. But um, thank goodness those days are gone. Now, coming back to the, the trip you've just done, your impression of the Czech Republic and the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You state in an article you wrote for us that the um, this, this, quote, special operation, close quote, as Putin likes to call it, has awakened the memories of the 1968 Soviet invasion that crushed the Prague Spring Freedom Movement in Czech and Slovak lands. That invasion of 1968, like your views on it, it has an almost almost like, I don't know if it's the right word, but iconic quality. There's, when you say 1968, there are two things you think of. One is the riots in, in Paris, and the other is the crushing of freedom in the Czech Republic. Yeah, I think that um, th that parallel to 68 is obviously pertinent. So since there was tremendous hope in Prague at that time that you could reform communism from within, and that you could make a essentially liberal society and still call it communist. And that went on for several months. You know, people could travel. This was remarkable because, you know, one of the characteristics of a communist state is that um, people were essentially prisoners in their mm -hmm. own country. They couldn't, even within the East Bloc, you couldn't travel easily from Czechoslovakia to East Germany or Hungary or to uh, Romania. You might have an easier time to go to the Soviet Union, but it was crushed suddenly because people in Moscow were threatened by these freedoms. For example, Havel's plays could be performed. People could go about their business and, and again, travel. But I was surprised, Sarah, to find something from more than 50 years ago still fresh mm. in the minds of people who were too young even to remember that. And in that sense, there is foreboding mm. about Ukraine a sense that this will go beyond the borders of Ukraine. I suppose if you draw a line with NATO, it's not going to be the Baltics or Poland or other NATO members, but what about places like Moldova, mm. which was a Soviet? I'm quite intrigued because you, you talk about the uh, President Milos Zeman, who's being assertively pro-Russian until February. And then he described the Russian invasion as a crime and called President Vladimir Putin a madman. I assume from what you say about the memory of 1968 that generally the people would, would look very warily on, on someone like Putin and on what Russia may be up to. Was he just completely out of out of touch with, with the way the people were feeling or was were the people perhaps a little more uh, accommodating? Zeman is a controversial figure. First of all, he's a drinker and that's what's um, ruined his health. And he is in a wheelchair now. I think he's only, only, it's a relative term. Uh, I think he's 71, 72. The Czechs don't do politics very well. Okay. And the society has been bitterly divided since independence, since freedom in 1989, 90. So there is an element of the social democratic movement in the Czech Republic that has been pro-Russian. It's certainly never been in majority and, and, and isn't even with Zeman as president. Essentially, you had Havel as president, 
and then Václav Klaus, who was a right-wing person and a real nemesis of Havel, became president. And then he was discredited, corruption, other kinds of... Uh, he was a very difficult person in the sense that he, he was rudely treating people who disagreed with him. And people were, in the end, fed up with Václav Klaus. And so he's in retirement. And then Zeman. Zeman, I, I'd have to check my figures, but I think it's been three or four years he's been president. But for him to make these statements of saying I was wrong, I think is quite significant. As to his relations with Putin, I have no idea. I'm, I know they've met, but I think he's shocked, frankly, mm. that um, something, these two brotherly states, there could actually be a Russian military move mm. into the state that was delivering the Orthodox religion to Russia. You know, mm. at least 40% of the language is, is mutually understandable. Mm. I think he's shocked. But again, I wouldn't want to read the mind of Melos Zeman, but I think it's significant, his reversal of sentiment. It's interesting because you quote um, two ordinary Czechs uh, saying that Putin is like Hitler, he won't stop, and another who says Russians won't stop until they are defeated. I personally thought that when he was so bold as to move in as he did, that there's an old-fashioned quality to Putin, and if he was prepared to make that sort of so bold a move um, in an era of not having had conflict on European soil for 70-odd for years, that... That's not true, in, by the way. Don't oh, forget Kosovo. Don't oh, forget that's Kosovo. true. That's, that's, true, that's, that's very true. important, because uh, that was 1999. Mm -hmm. The Albanians fought the Serbs, etc. But mm -hmm. I interrupt. Yeah. It brings to mind the Second World War. I mean, it, it, it's, it's that sort of almost um, classic invasion, you know, sort of massing on the borders and then going in. I think it's my sense as well is that if you listen to Putin and you get to know anything of his character, he has to be defeated. Whatever the de that defeat looks like, this is not a personality that uh, negotiations can take place if he's been prepared to do this at this juncture. I think it's impossible to say how this will mm -hmm. all turn out. And I find it very difficult to probe deep into the mind of Vladimir Putin. I do take a somewhat heterodox view that obviously Putin has made a huge miscalculation, mm -hmm. but how this will turn out. I myself don't think that Russia, weakened as it is militarily, would have the appetite to keep going. I think the Hitler analogy is relevant, mm -hmm. but at the same time, one shouldn't forget that the German move into Poland in 1939 resulted in declarations of war from France and Britain. I think that uh, Putin is aware of that. I, I, when I was in Prague, a German editor friend of mine happened to be there, and we met, he and his wife, Stefan Richter, and he was gassed that Putin had used the term special military operation, whatever mm. he calls it, yes. because he said that's exactly what Hitler did with the Polish operation. He didn't call it an invasion. He called it a special military operation. Well, I don't know what Stefan's view is, but he thinks, as you just said, that Putin has to be defeated. I think you could make the case on the other side that uh, that might be more dangerous than if there's some kind of negotiated settlement. I think that's really the situation we live in with Putin is to keep being a nuclear power. I don't think he's a madman, but I do think he has a sort of rationality, whether it may not be our sort of rationality. He he knows what he wants and he, he knows what he's doing. He may not know that he's have realized that he's not as, as militarily strong as he thought he might be. But I wouldn't, uh, I think one has to be very careful to call, to refer to leaders as mad.
the you make the point uh, that uh, Kissinger at the grand age of of 98 has has been talking has been interviewed about this and he's cautioned against promoting regime change in russia and my sense is that he's probably right about that if if uh, regime change probably has to grow, come organically from within russia uh, by virtue of circumstances that he has created or otherwise what's your view on on that view well i i think uh, I, I really respect kissinger on this and he went on to say that um, in the United States perspective, don't have two enemies of major powers, don't have China and Russia as your adversary, because you drive them together. Mm. And they're already together. So we'll see what President Biden does with that. You know, John Mearsheimer, the scholar at uh, the University of Chicago, is an iconoclast on this. He thinks that the Americans and NATO provoked Russia because Russia had long made clear that you cannot make Ukraine part of the West or part of NATO. And Mearsheimer would argue that over the since the Maidan revolution of 2014, which he would claim the Americans had much to do in fulminating, that it's, Ukraine has been a de facto NATO member. And therefore, our hands are not clean. I think that I don't know the Soviet Union or Russia very well, but I think that the real threat that is viewed from the Kremlin is democracy. And Ukraine was moving towards democracy, elections, free media. And you see it even with this sinking of the Moskva cruiser. They don't even tell their people in Russia what happened. And there's no journos inside of this, just as the Chinese are. And I think that um, democracy is contagious. And, you know, that must be in Putin's mind. I mean, you sure you don't want them in an alliance against you and part of NATO, but you also don't want this creeping freedom that I'm sure threatens threatens all those in power in in the Kremlin. Yeah, it strikes me that uh, Ukraine would would, as you've said, be seen as a, a country that corruption was rampant. Um, <laughs> yes. Government government was not until the. In the last few years, anywhere near de- uh, democratic, um, right? So that, that, that would have been seen as you know they 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 keeping their they they they're keeping to their place as as they should, and that's the the problem I imagine with someone like Putin is that maybe because of the di- sort of dictatorial nature and the need for people to to appease him and make sure that he doesn't get angered by anything, his era on the ground wasn't particularly good about how Ukraine was was moving. Um, there is a sort of almost old-fashioned quality to the, the whole the whole war, the, the way he's prosecuting the war, including some of the tactics that he's using, some of the lack of sophistication in his in his armaments. I have to say it is impressive the way that the, the Ukrainians seem to have moved away from a sort of centralized model of conducting warfare um, to a localized model so that people so that who, who's ever on the ground in a particular place can respond to what they see, create circumstances that are more advantageous to them, even though they are not absolutely etc. They are defending their own territory. They are the aggrieved party. No one can dispute that. Uh, they were invaded. It's not unlike the American Civil War. You know, leave aside the race question. Can be done at times looking at the American Civil War. The South was invaded by Northern troops. Mm. Thus, the South put up very spirited resistance for four years. Mm. And they were greatly outnumbered, just as the Ukrainians. 
are greatly under. I think the, the Ukrainians have got obviously several things going for them. You've got the Americans and the Europeans completely on their side, really wanting victory, mm. not an end. You don't, you don't hear anybody in Germany, France, or America talking about, let's get some diplomacy here to end the slaughter. No, I think these countries in the West want a Ukrainian victory. Mm. Now, whether that's right or not is another question. But the Ukrainians themselves are divided. They've always been divided. Mm. The far west of Ukraine, around Lviv, or Lviv, or Lvov, since it's been, it's been Lithuanian, it's been Ukrainian, it's been Russian. Those people are Catholic, but a different kind of Catholic. Mm. Then you get to the center around Kiev, they're Orthodox and mixed. Mm. And then you get to the far east of Ukraine, where the Russians are, and they're Russian speakers. So, you know, this is a very complicated country. Mm. And it's not, the war has, of course, unified them. Yes, of course. As, as wars will do when you're invaded. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it, it's one of those parts of the world where the history is just uh, mixed and varied and tra traumatic. Um, as is that part of the world tends to be. That's probably why it was in the position it was in. Sort of change direction a bit. Um, we're now looking at Finland and Sweden having applied to join NATO. And presumably behind that is the, is Russian aggression and, and the fear that, that how strong, ever strong they may be on their own, they, that's, that may not be enough. But Finland's, Finland is a particularly interesting problem because it has such a long border with Russia, and it's really not that far from Russian cities. So would Moscow be likely looking at that as a provocation by virtue of that border and the history, the, the history between Finland and Russia, with Russia trying to annex fin, um, Finland, what, five, six decades ago? Yes, that's true. I think the Russian response to the move by NATO enlargement, including Finland and Sweden's wish to join, has been remarkably mild. Mm. And I'm not sure why. I think this further demonstrates the miscalculation that Putin made. I mean, he gets exactly the opposite mm. of what he wanted. And it shows the extent to which fear is prevalent in Western Europe, mm. to have two countries that have been treasuring their neutrality for decades and in some cases centuries, Please, yeah. to throw that out, say we've got to join these guys because the Russians are dangerous. That's why I think, Sarah, we're looking at 2022 mm. as a critical year. Mm. Sadly, not like 1989, which was a good year of revolution. Mm. This is a year in which we see Russia weaken, no matter whatever happens mm. in future. Mm. And things have changed in a way we really don't yet understand. Mm. Um, you you refer to uh, Jeffrey Sachs, the Columbia University professor, um, who had once advised uh, former Russian President Boris Yeltsin, and he 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 warned he warns 
that a country with 1,800 nuclear warheads should not be pushed into a corner. But at the same time, so from a point of how the West prosecutes that war, it becomes very important. Um, but he seems to say, and your view on this, that there really isn't a diplomatic, quote, off-ramp for Russia. Well, there should be. I mean, I think somebody, the Turks should get involved, anybody, the Chinese, Somebody needs to stop this war or make efforts to stop the war. The risk of error, of a mistake, is the Americas. And, you know, $30 billion has just been approved. This is a massive amount of money. Mm -hmm. And all of these weapons that pour into Ukraine through Poland. Hungarians have a small border and they say, no, we won't allow anything to go in from our territory. I think the Slovaks are doing the same. The Romanians are doing so. It's all through Poland. Mm. Well, this is dangerous. Mm. So, yeah, I think Jeffrey Sachs is simply saying, hold it. This is a power that has been aggrieved itself since the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, by the way, they say that the real nemesis for Putin is Lenin. Mm -hmm. mm. He hates Lenin. Yeah. Because Lenin went to a kind of federalized, there was a Ukraine, there was a Moldova, there was a Kazakhstan, all with certain powers. Mm -hmm. And of course, Putin is now an anti-communist, has been for 20 odd years, but of course would say, and very comfortable, I don't see any contradiction in him saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest disaster he could imagine, because that was a great country that has now been reduced to, mm. well, not poverty. They're probably living better in Russia than they have 20 years, these past 20 years than they ever have. That's a quote from uh, the, the Fiona Hill, who was is a top Russian expert in Washington. Um, it's just complicated. I think Sachs's argument is valid. You don't take a great power or a former great power and squeeze them mm. and say, you know, we're going to sort of reduce you to the power of Portugal. Mm. It doesn't seem to make sense. And in that sense, I think that these desires for a full Ukrainian victory are really, really dangerous. Mm. Um, just in the last few minutes, last couple of minutes, just to look at what effect this has had on China. Um, China's the winner, in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, China is uh, going to pick up the pieces. And if you can't sell your oil, if you're Russia, you can't sell your oil and gas to the West, which was their major market, mm -hmm. you've got to sell it to somebody. The Chinese are going to get it at discounted prices. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Russians, assuming that Putin reigns in power or his successor, they're going to need economic assistance. Mm -hmm. The Belt and Road Initiative, which is such a powerful tool, even in, in, in Southern Africa, um, will be, in fact, expanded. So I, I cannot see that China has done anything wrong. I think in their perspective, failing to condemn what the Russians have done keeps the alliance with Russia alive. At the same time, they've not rushed military equipment to the Russians. Mm -hmm. so they're playing a careful game. The Chinese will win. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's the impression is that the Chinese are very very measured in 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 the way they appear to make decisions, and uh, they've got they've got Russia in uh, the subordinate position. Um, 
in in that sense. And and of course, the concern is what it what it might mean for Taiwan uh, in in the long run. Yes, and let's not forget, Sarah. We talk about a long border of the Finns and the Russians. How about the Chinese and the Russians? Mm. Thousands of kilometers, and there's no Russians out there,、mm. and there's lots of Chinese.、Mm. You know, this is as Mr. Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, likes to say, Russia-Chinese relations are the best they've ever been, and that goes back at least a thousand years. So we'll see where this all ends up.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, global ramifications、um, for an unexpected、um, scenario, and、uh, it's it has all the、uh, all the emotional hallmarks that come from generally come from the from that part of the world. Barry, thank you very much for talking to me.、Uh, much appreciated.、Um, it's. It's an area I know they've been calls from from this part of the world to say, you know, what about, you know, other wars? Why aren't people on at wars on Africa? But frankly, Ukraine's the Russian Ukrainian war has an impact globally that a lot of other wars, for better or for worse, don't have. You're quite right.